Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like monkeys, credit and frying pans. Oh, the the credit of a monkey with a frying pan, I think we should do. <laughs> or we could do moons, spoons and lampoons, dunes, dragoons and harpoons. <laughs> Any of those take your fancy, Sam Willis? Yeah, yes, harpoons. Harpoons. I'm interested in that. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, we've done dragons, which is almost like dragoons, but slightly different. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Maybe the history of spoons. Somebody on social media suggested that we do the history of the staircase. That's a cracker. Which I thought was a lovely idea. So thank you yep. for that suggestion. Um, oh, I do like that. All about That's staircases. Really... I also, so, I wanted I, to do height many years ago, do the history of height, which you ooh, can do. Do you know, I want a... to do the history of the index because I got uh, Dennis Duncan's brilliant new book, the history of the, cultural history of the index, I think it's called. Hmm. And it's right up our street or my street at least. <laughs> <laughs> so, however, we are to monstrously digress because what we should be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of debt is in fact all about the age of American independence, character, morality and charity. It's about debtors' prison, the law and punishment via Charles Dickens. It's also all about genealogy and discovering skeletons in closets. It's about debtors in your family tree. It's about economic bubbles, including the South Sea bubble and tulip mania. It's about King Croesus. It's about tally sticks and the Roman views of ethics on the... It's not about the Roman (laughs) views of ethics. It's Essex. It's in fact about the Roman views of ethics on the acquisition of art. Or who knew that the history of reading is in fact all about Renaissance book wheels, medieval reading aloud, Bibles, sending letters and the concept of privacy. It's about glasses, secrecy, codes, and it's also all about snooping. Nothing to do with Essex. Who knew Sam Willis? (laughs) I'm sure they do read in Essex. I think so. Um, wonderful stuff and um, both excellent episodes do please go back through the back catalogue and check those out um, you're probably wondering who my fellow presenter is telling you all this wonderful information let me just say that if history were a dinosaur this man would be an immense 
blood-red sandstone cliff from the Jurassic coast, who had carefully embraced that historical dinosaur under the immense weight of his learning and knowledge, preserving it for future generations to come to the beachy foot of his cliff, chip away with their own hammers and chisels of research to uncover the past for their own betterment and pleasure. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, hello. And you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a dinosaur-related historian, he'd only be the Tyrannosaurus Rex of the historical world. So mighty and ferocious are his historical powers, so towering and terrifying is his quest for uncovering the truth of the past. He tears lumps of flesh out of the archives, roars with great authority about pronouncements of the past. And yet, unlike these terrifying dinosaur beasts of the prehistoric past, he is in no fear of extinction. His historical legacy will be more than fossilised remains. Yes, (laughs) you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. I was quite pleased with that one. Triumph. Hello, everyone. Um, We are doing the history of dinosaurs, uh, which is something I've been wanting to do for some time. So I was I wanted to do this for some time as well. And I was thinking about how on earth do you start writing an unexpected history of dinosaurs? Because essentially we're dealing with a prehistoric period. So it's less about dinosaurs themselves. Fascinating, though that is, although they are. And it's more about dinosaurs as historical phenomena, the history of discovery and interpretation museums, their cultural significance, why you think they have such an allure to people, not just kids. I'm utterly obsessed with dinosaurs still. And think of the marketing department in Dorset, those people that renamed that coastline Jurassic Coast, very, very near us. You can wander, wander by it daily, selling the natural beauty of Devon and Dorset's coastline by virtue of its association with the Jurassic era and, of course, dinosaurs. Yeah, the, the, the geography of it. I've been interested in the Jurassic Coast as well, um, partly because I'm going to make a little documentary about it in the coming months, which is very exciting. And I love the um, the way that humans and dinosaurs have kind of existed hand in hand for a while here. Um, and it really does open up so many different ways that you can think about that human history of our relationship with dinosaurs. Um, Discovery is obviously an important part of it. There's a fascinating history there um, and a real history of of competition and violence in some respects about people wanting to be the first to discover something and disrupting other people's discoveries as well. So I was interested in that. Um, I like the cliffs themselves, the, the lovely red sandstone. Uh, I think that they're very interesting and the way that people found out that there was something valuable, culturally significant, hidden inside rocks and stones and cliffs. I think that's that's quite interesting, the history of that, of trying to convince people that there is value in something which is not apparently valuable. On top of that, um, there is the wonderful history of, of how humans have described and depicted dinosaurs so I want to talk a little bit about dinosaurs in fiction and dinosaurs in art. Oh wonderful Sam I I mean I was just geeked out by all sorts of dinosaur facts here um all sorts of things and I'm going to be talking about the invention of the dinosaurs by Sir Richard Owen who's an extraordinary character 
named them in 1842 based on some discoveries in Britain, in England at the time. And he was one of the first people to actually name them as a category of, of, of reptiles. But they are a group of reptiles that have lived on the Earth for about 245 million years. Fossils have been found on seven continents. There are apparently 700 known species of extinct dinosaurs um, in in record. Um, you think about the kinds of people who discover dinosaurs, paleontologists, so the, and the kinds of fossils that they're that they're working on, things like teeth, bones. And I've been doing some really fascinating reading about the discovery of dinosaur eggs that I want to talk about, and also what colour you think dinosaurs might be. And also um, the depiction in film as well. Have you ever seen One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing? Brilliant, uh, no. Brilliant Disney yes. film. Oh, that does ring a bell a, a long time ago now. Chinese spies yeah. uh, go along to the Natural History Museum where a secret microfilm has been uh, inserted inside a dinosaur, and they they walk out with the dinosaur. This is one of the earliest memories of dinosaurs in my childhood. I saw that film mm. when I was very young. Absolutely terrific. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, for my childhood, it was it was Jurassic Park. I mean, the, the book was in 1990, so that's 32 years ago now. Um, and that was an important part of my own personal history. I thought it was, it was fascinating. And um, interestingly, actually, when I started writing books, the first three books I wrote were huge, big, larger-than-coffee-table-sized books, on um, fighting ships, they were called, on, on naval history. And uh, at the same time, someone had taken the, the, the idea of producing these enormous books, but had done one on dinosaurs as well. So there's another kind of key moment in my life which is linked with dinosaurs. But anyway, back to Crichton and um, and his, his book, Jurassic Park. I think we'll all obviously know about the film. There's an interesting uh, film history here. But um, I was fascinated in the, the fact that Crichton didn't essentially in, invent... Jurassic Park, but it, what his book was a clever updating of um, the Conan Doyle novel, uh, The Lost World from 1912. And even that wasn't the earliest uh, depiction of um, of dinosaurs, or at least it wasn't the, the first time that anyone saw the, um, the science fiction potential, is probably the best way of putting it, the science fiction potential of writing about dinosaurs. And that can actually be traced all the way out to 1901. And Frank Mackenzie Savile, who published uh, an adventure tale, I think it was at the time, Beyond the Great South Wall, it was called. And it's about explorers searching for signs of the lost Mayan civilization. Um I wonder what wall he's actually talking about there. Maybe it was Trump's wall. He went south into South into uh, the, the, the into South America and to explore the the Mayans. Um, they find the remains of the Mayan civilization. There's a, a good bit of archaeology here, but they're also attacked by um, a, a a monster called Key or K C A Y, and it's an enormous reptilian carnivore uh, that was revered worshipped as a god by the Mayans and it comes back to life and causes all sorts of trouble there's a wonderful description of the monster high up the slope of the mountainside lurching slowly across the bare bleak slabs of granite was a beast and he was like unto nothing known outside the frenzy of delirium 
Swartly green was his huge lizard-like body and covered with filthy excrescences of a livid hue. His neck was the lithe neck of a boa constrictor, but glossy as with a sweat of oil. A coarse, heavy, serrated tail dragged and lolloped along the rocks behind him, leaving in its wake a glutinous snail-like smear. Four great feet or flippers paddled and slushed beside, rather than under, this mass of living horror, urging it lingeringly and remorselessly toward us. The great neck swayed and hovered before it, poising the little malignant head. The horny eyelids winked languidly over the deepest wicked eyes, the lean red tongue slavering over the thin, hide-like lips, wagged out at us as if in mockery. The teeth and the nails in the webbed puddy feet were yellow and tusk-like, and a skinny dewlap rustled as it crawled across the stones. Wow! That is some serious description. It makes me want to go and read the entire book. So, um, the point to make here is that there is a, a really wonderful history of dinosaurs in fiction and even Dickens got in on the act and uh, in his opening paragraph of uh, The Bleak House, this is 1852 so you know half a century before that last one from 1901 I read um, and he describes a, a notable character never seen in, in anything before London, Michaelmas term lately over, and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall, implacable November weather. As much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth, and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus, forty feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Holborn Hill. Now, in both of these descriptions, here we've got Dickens in 1852, and then the first one where, where science fiction really gets involved, uh, 1901. The, de the descriptions and the depictions of the dinosaurs necessarily reflect the knowledge of dinosaurs at the time. And that, of course, changed over time, and you can see that whole pathway, that um, changing narrative of a human understanding of dinosaurs all the way up to the, the films Jurassic Park now and the way that they reflect um, contemporary scientific understanding of dinosaurs so not only are these fun to read but they also help you um, understand the impact of uh, changing human knowledge of these wonderful animals How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Oh, fascinating, Sam. I was thinking Dickens as well. I remember reading Bleak House for A-Level and spending quite some time on that opening sort of couple of pages where they describe the sort of labyrinthine nature of chancery, this sort of, you know, this this court that sort of got its tentacles into everywhere and the description of fog. So I was thinking about that elephantine, that elephantine lizard. Mm. And of course... 1852 was I right at 1852 yeah. is yeah, yeah. Dickens is picking up of course on that sort of Victorian discovery of dinosaurs which links would you believe it or not to what I was going to talk about next and I was going to talk about the man who invented the dinosaur a man called Sir Richard Owen who was a man who was brought up I think in Lancashire from a you know fairly ordinary family um, but was absolutely fascinated by dinosaurs. He described them as terrible lizards. He named them as their own taxonomic group. And he was also really important, not just for his research and his discoveries and naming them and the nomenclature and the organisation of them, but also he was one of the people who established London's Natural History Museum in 1881. He was something of a celebrity scientist who's super famous as a, as a scientist. So he was not only somebody who researched, but he was also really keen to have the research put on, on display. Now, we know something of his education and upbringing. He was educated at Lancaster Royal Grammar School uh, and he was there from 1809 to 1819 and there's very little evidence that survives about him from this time except that it was claimed by one of his schoolmasters that he was impudent uh, so in other words he was he was stubborn he was seen as clever but but he was he was a, a complete nonconformist and I think this was something that was actually a hallmark of his entire career. He was a really tricky personality and larger-than-life character. Um, I get this. He, he was accused of stealing other people's specimens, writing anonymous reviews of people's work uh, in print, uh, and basically one of his rivals at the time, one of his contemporaries and rivals, a man called Gideon Mantell, said of him that he was, and I quote, overpaid, overpraised and cursed with a jealous, monopolising spirit. And Whoa, he, <laughs> that's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. And he fell out with Charles Darwin. So in public, he, he agrees with the idea of the origin of species, but... Uh, 
in actual fact, he's quite jealous of him. And he supposedly wrote an anonymous article in which he criticised Darwin, but praised his own research, uh, praised his own work. I mean, I should uh, we should do this ourselves, I think. It's, <laughs> having said that, the fact that he is this sort of quite a difficult personality shouldn't take away from the importance of what he of what he did and the importance not only of the research, but also the importance of having the work um, presented. So uh, he puts together a very sort of long campaign. Uh, and in 1881, he manages to have the doors opened in South Kensington of the Natural History Museum, a building that stands today. And Bill Bryson, in his History of Everything, um, describes this as by making the Natural History Museum an institution for everyone, Owen transformed our expectation for what museums are. And if you have a look at his published work, he has great sort of technical descriptions of vertebrata, invertebrate animals. His publications include his comparative anatomy and physiology of vertebrae. He has a, a big four volume history of British fossil fossil reptiles. And as I said before, he thinks of dinosaurs in conceptual terms and actually defines them. And I just want to read you an extract of his writing on dinosaurians. This group, he writes, which includes at least three well-established genera of saurians, is characterised by a large sacrum composed of five ankylosed vertebrae of unusual construction, by the height and breadth and outward sculpturing of the neural arch of the dorsal vertebrae, very technical language here, by the twofold articulation of the ribs to the vertebrae, viz. at the anterior part of the spine by a head and tubercle, and along the rest of the trunk by a tubercle attached to the transverse process only by broad and sometimes complicated caracoids and long and slender clavicles, whereby crocodilian characters of the vertebral column are combined with a lancertian type of the pectoral arch. The dental organs also exhibit the same transitional or antecedent characters in a greater or less degree. The bones of the extremities are of large proportional size for saurians. They're provided with large medullary cavities and with well-developed and unusual processes and are terminated by metacarpal, metatarsal and phalangeal bones, which, with the exception of the ungual phalanges and phalangeal bones, which, with the exception of the ungual phalange, more or less resemble those of the heavy pachydermal mammals, and attest with the hollow long bones the terrestrial habits of the species. The combination of such characters, some as the sacral ones altogether peculiar among reptiles, others borrowed, as it were, from groups now distinct from each other, and all manifested by creatures far surpassing in size the largest of existing reptiles, will, it is presumed, be deemed sufficient ground for establishing a distinct tribe or suborder of saurian reptiles. And here we are, here's the payoff, for which I would propose the name of... Dinosauria. Of this tribe, the principal and best established genera are the Megalosaurus, 
the Hyliosaurus and the Iguanodon, the gigantic crocodile lizards of the dry land, the peculiarities of the osteological structure of which distinguish them as clearly from the modern terrestrial and amphibious sauria as the opposite modifications for an aquatic life characterised the extinction uh, Enaliosauria or marine lizards. So there we are. There's his there's his description of it. Um, what's what's also extraordinary is not only did he define them, but also, as I said, he presented these specimens to the public. And one of the things that he specialised in was helping to create over two dozen life-size sculptures of various prehistoric animals that were built out of concrete, which was sculptured over brick and steel framework. Um, the ones that went um, on display in the Natural History Museum, he had died before he actually saw them in completion. But he creates some of these, or helps create some of these models, for the Great Exhibition of 1851. And about 33 were produced uh, when Crystal Palace was relocated and famously on New Year's Eve I don't know what you did on on New Year's Eve this year Sam um, but on New Year's Eve in 1853 he hosted a dinner of 21 prominent scientists and he held the dinner inside <laughs> the hollow of the concrete iguanodon yeah I've seen, get, the, I've seen that picture get that it, for a party yeah, it's amazing. There is a drawing of it, which I think appeared in the Illustrated London News or something like that. It's um, it's worth looking at. And um, famously, James, of course, many of those models that he helped to create uh, still exist. You can yes. see them in Crystal Palace still. Yes. And I thought they were real, uh, but they're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, disappointing. disappointing. Very disappointing. Um, but, you know, that does also raise the question of, of how... Uh, we have imagined dinosaurs to appear and how that has changed. And it's really interesting. The more you think about it, the more complicated it gets. But even now, we don't know really what they look like. Uh, it's just that our understanding has become uh, sort of more subtle and more detailed as time has passed. Um, and at the time, you know, going back to the 19th century, mid 19th century, the, the fossil bones, there were not as many as there are now. So fewer had been discovered. And essentially, um, it, it, it's a, it was a blank slate upon which they could uh, project their own imagination. So there was all, a lot of biblical, um, mythological imagery associated with um, with these images of dinosaurs. Also, a lot of kind of apocalyptic war zones and lots of fire and lightning and also a great deal of fighting. Very rare that any of these uh, dinosaurs were ever depicted um, minding their own business. So not only is it a question of what dinosaurs look like and how that's changed, but also how they behaved. There are some really wonderful, um, in, really fascinating examples which uh, which are worth looking at. And they... they it make you realise how the, the depiction of, of a dinosaur is actually it's um, it, it comes at a crossroads of of art and science and myth and also collective fantasy. Um, a lot of the artists were they were they were not just depicting what they thought a dinosaur looked like, but what they thought everyone wanted a dinosaur to look like. So there's another level of kind of complication there. Um, 
I've got a handful of wonderful um, ones here, titles. I, I can't describe them brilliantly to you, so you might have to look them up. Tarbosaurus and Armoured Dinosaur by Konstantin Konstantinovich Flyorov. Uh, painted in 1955. Another one from this period, Inostrancebia, devouring a Parisaurus by Alexei Petrovich Biastro, 1933. The point here is that these were both painted by Russian artists during the Soviet era. And um, yeah, if you look at these pictures, they are remarkably different from any other type of dinosaur art created. And the interesting thing about what's going on here is you've got you've got art of dinosaurs created from uh, the Soviet Union reflecting as a Stalinist culture of of monumental decoration these things are enormous as well and there are other in, enormous 100 foot tall mosaics and murals um uh, in which they are exploring subjects which mean a great deal during the cold war during the soviet union so astronauts is one other scientific fields is one and, and paleo art the art of dinosaurs is another um, another of my favorites uh, which i came across was absolutely fantastic it's the ichthyosaur and the plesiosaur by edward ryu and um uh, he's an interesting chap anyway he's a, he's a french artist collaborates with jules verne um, and he actually does a lot of the uh, illustrations for m many of Verne's most famous works. Five Weeks in a Balloon in 1865, The Journey to the Centre of the Earth in 1867, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, 1871, and The Survivors of the Chancellor, 1875. That's actually one of my favourites. And uh, he does 45 different illustrations in that. Um, why this one matters in particular is that what he's doing is depicting, um, he's got an ichthyosaur and a plesiosaur being depicted as, as enemies pitted against each other. And these two are interesting because they're in the sea, they're maritime reptiles. And James, you're going to guess where I'm going with this. But he's making these in the mid 19th century. And dinosaurs fighting at sea provided a, a perfect uh, allegory for the naval conflicts of the age. This is a period where you've got France and Britain at loggerheads with their navies. The French have just built La Gloire, a big iron, um, iron-plated warship. Uh, the British then launched the Warrior. Uh, in America, you've got ships like the CSS Virginia, steam-powered, iron-clad warships. You've got nations fighting each other at sea with new technologies and, and in vessels larger than anyone has ever seen before. So particularly... Um, these depictions by Ryu at the time um, are seen as an allegory of, of what was going on um, on at sea in, in terms of naval history. So there's all sorts of wonderful stuff going on. The, the Crystal Palace ones, um, you can still see them and they're fantastic in that they really very clearly depict uh, how often sort of a misunderstood dinosaurs um, one of the ones I thought was particularly interesting is the, the iguanodon. There's an iguanodon in the Crystal Palace. Dinosaurs as a spike on the end of its nose, and that's they, that's because they found a spike 
um, is part of an iguanodon skeleton, but they didn't know where it went. So they put it on the end of its nose like a rhino. It was only later when they found a full skeleton that they realised that the spikes were actually like a thumb. They, they, they existed on the hands of the iguanodon. Um, so those are good. And I, I, I think one of the interesting points to make here is that people are painting dinosaurs in a period where they have limited understanding of the dinosaur. But that means that when the scientific knowledge changes, the illustrations that have been created hitherto suddenly become redundant uh, because they're inaccurate. And that means that a lot of the uh, inaccurate, out-of-date depictions of dinosaurs are, are remarkable survivals because so many of them were simply thrown away. They weren't needed anymore, especially in uh, institutions like um, big museums or the Natural History Museum. And suddenly you've got a, a, a drawing which is inaccurate and it was created to be accurate and therefore um, it has no further use. So I think there's a wonderful history here of, um, of throwing things out, but also also nurturing and cherishing things for their own historical value um, and for the, the fact that the purpose for which they exist can change over time. Oh, Sam, that fits really well with something that I was reading, which was about what colour are dinosaurs? Because oh, yeah. if you think about how people depict dinosaurs it's not just physically how do they depict them but also it's in terms of the color and if you think about it part of that is about a combination of scientific evidence but also artistic guesswork and when you look at the range of colors that are used to depict dinosaurs they tend to be pretty dark colors it tends to be sort of browns and sort of blackish colors and this is linked to um, something called melanin which is a pig pigment that is found uh, in dinosaur skeletons and there's been a range of work uh, done on this uh, in particular I was reading about the work of one scientist called Dr Maria McNamara uh, who is a would you believe a paleobiologist at the University College Cork in Ireland and basically she has studied this um, melanin in in skeletons and she's actually found that whereas before people assumed that this pigment was on the was on the outside, so in other words was on the skin and externally, um, in actual fact her research has shown that it's actually on many of the internal organs. So things like the lungs, the heart, the liver, the spleen, connective tissues, kidneys. So in other words it's everywhere. So in fact what we're the colour that we're using to inspire our imaginations about what dinosaurs looked on, like on the outside, in actual fact, could well have been their internal organs, their insides. Also, this is complicated even further by the fact that over millions and millions of years, this these pigments change, change shape, change colour. So, in fact, what survives doesn't necessarily represent... The colour that dinosaurs were. One of the things that I was really disappointed in was I thought that suddenly the the findings of this study was going to be that dinosaurs were a bizarre kaleidoscope of colours and there were reds and purples and greens and everything. They don't actually know what colour dinosaurs are. However, what they're suggesting is that there is scope to examine the significance of colour uh, with further research. And there are some big research projects on at the moment about the colour of dinosaurs, um, not only in terms of what actual colour 
they were, but also the significance of colour in terms of dinosaurs and mating and dinosaurs and protection, all of those kinds of things. Um, so actually, you know, the science sort of coexists with what you were saying about the um, the the sort of artistic history of how dinosaurs were represented. One final thing uh, that I want to, to talk about is fossilised dinosaur eggs. Uh, this was something I'd, I thought literally was a, an April Fool's uh, when I read about this. But the American Natural History Museum has a brilliant blog article on dinosaur eggs. And until about the 1980s, these fossilised eggs and bones of young dinosaurs were extremely rare. and But now they have been discovered on several continents. And it's not just sort of an intact nest of dinosaur eggs. It is also um, fossilised sort of babies or hatchlings or juveniles and adults. And there's one... Um, really amazing find that they describe which was found in Montana um, and these are the fossils of duck-billed dinosaurs and it's described as a <laughs> found intact as a death assemblage or a mass grave and what is fossilized is not only the nests the nests have eggs in them uh, some of the eggs were were broken so the hatchlings are are there there are also juveniles running around presumably they've sort of you know run around and cracked some of the eggs uh, and also adults found together with them so in actual fact what you get is not only this sort of discovery but also a really firm understanding of how dinosaurs reproduce so you know largely by um laying laying eggs and and hatching those eggs um, but also you get a sense of the sort of lifestyle uh, reproduction and parenting that people are suddenly discovering and one of the most one of the other sort of um, highlights in the American Museum of Natural History is when they did uh, an expedition to Central Asia uh, in 1923 and they went to a place in Mongolia called the Flaming Cliffs and this was where they discovered a, a collection of dinosaur eggs as well um, and once they sort of found them they brought them home analyzed them and they were thought to belong to a dinosaur called uh, Protoceratops and we have a record for of the field notes of the scene of discovery uh, of the leader of the expedition, a man called Roy Chapman Andrews. On July 13th, George Olson reported at Tiffin, in other words, lunch or tea, that we had found some fossil eggs. We felt quite certain that his so-called eggs would prove to be geological phenomena. Nevertheless, we were all curious enough to go with him to inspect his finds. So in other words, they didn't believe it. We saw a small sandstone ledge beside which were lying three eggs partly broken. The brown striated shell was so egg-light that there could be no mistake. Granger finally said no dinosaur eggs have ever been found 
but the reptile probably did lay eggs. These must be dinosaur eggs. They can't be anything else. The prospect, he describes, was thrilling, but we would not let ourselves think of it too seriously and continue to scrutinise the supposition from every possible standpoint. But finally, we had to admit that eggs are eggs and that we could make them out to be nothing else. It was evident that dinosaurs did lay eggs and that we had discovered the first specimens known to science. So there we are, Sam. The, the, the popular history of science and the discovery of dinosaur eggs, which have shaped the way in which previous generations have thought about, or subsequent generations have thought about dinosaurs. Wonderful stuff. And it makes you uh, really look forward to what's going to be the next discovery. It's a bit like history itself, James. There's it always going to be something certainly new is. change the way we think about the past. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our history of dinosaurs, our unexpected history of dinosaurs. We've got lots of wonderful stuff coming soon uh, in this year. I'm looking forward to it very much. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. If you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. Uh, we also have a podcast Twitter handle, which is at Unexpected Pod. We are on Instagram and we are on Facebook. So come and befriend us there. We have an all singing, all dancing website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. And if you want to be a patron of us to support what we're doing, head over to patreon.com. Um, and we're also still signing books for people who wish them uh, in the new year. What a good way to start the new year. A habit of reading more history, Sam. What Ooh, a resolution, perhaps, James. Ooh, we, we, resolution. We, yeah. <laughs> Very good stuff. All right, guys, we'll be with you again soon. Cheerio. Take care, guys. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.